0: And taking their seats. Just a reminder, uh, Alan. Did we w- did we set a date for our Christmas? No. So that would be the like the probably the tenth tenth of the seventeenth. What? Probably the 10th or the 17th. I think those are the two options. Okay, we'll think about that. All right, just a reminder to check with the website about the uh, Museum of the Bible trip and the Israel trip next year. And those are the only announcements I have uh, at this time. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, his mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study... Uh, This evening, we'll make sure everybody turns off their cell phones and everything else that dings and bings and rings and everything else. And um, then uh, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure that they're in right relationship with the Lord so that this is a time that uh, counts for eternity. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can come together this evening. Each time we meet, we rejoice that we have the freedom in this nation to come together to meet, to study your word, to proclaim the truth of your word in a hostile world. And it is not that the world is any more or less hostile than it has always been, but in our culture, the hostility is becoming palpable. And, Fathers, believers, we need to learn to stand firm. We need to learn to expect opposition. And we need to think through how to respond like a Daniel, not to necessarily intensify and inflame the situation, but to talk and discuss and to present circumstances in Scripture in such a way that uh, that you can use it to win people and to attract them to the truth of your word. Father, we pray that as we study tonight, as we reflect upon the way in which you answered David's prayer, that we might be uh, reminded that you answer prayer. You are waiting for us to pray, and that you do indeed intervene in our lives and in circumstances, and in our thinking, you answer prayer. Father, we pray that tonight we might... Come to a greater understanding of the importance that prayer plays in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we're studying prayer on Sunday morning with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We wrapped that up this last uh, Sunday morning. And we continue in the Psalms to think about how God answered prayer, especially how God answered David's prayer. And so tonight we'll hopefully get into the main part of this. In verses 7 through 15, we might even make it to verse 19. This is an exceptionally dramatic description by David of how God intervened in his life, how God intervened to answer prayer. Now, as we look at the opening of Psalm 18 in the superscription. It's written to the chief musician, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this psalm on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now, how long had this been going on? How long had Saul been persecuting, chasing David, seeking to destroy him? We don't know exactly, but it was more than five years, I believe, and probably could be as long as 10 years. We're not given a lot of temporal markers, but we do know that there are 16 different times that Saul tried to kill David. So when David talks about the Lord coming rapidly and dramatically to rescue David, we must understand that with God uh, a thousand years or as a day and a day is as a thousand years, God has his perfect timing. And within that perfect timing, God answered David's prayer at a remarkable time when it seemed as if David didn't have any other escape hatches. He didn't have any place else to turn. He was boxed in and he didn't have other places to go. He had fled from Saul again and again down through the wilderness of Judea, some of the other areas in the desert, and then he got to the point where he couldn't get away anymore, so he went to the Philistines, and that put himself in a position of of danger personally, and he was even going to be uh, recruited into the Philistine army to go fight against Saul. And the other lords of the Philistines uh, came to <clears throat> Abimelech and said, you know, we're not letting David go with us. And so God intervened in his, in his providence to rescue David from that situation. But as we studied that, we see that he's, he's using every opportunity he can to try to survive in this extremely hostile environment. And so opportunities are drying up, the doors are closing, and God comes in the midst of that. And that's what I've experienced that, where it gets to a point where you're boxed in, you have no idea what the decision is going to be. God's got to intervene. And that's what David's talking about when he expresses this, this uh, description of God's dramatic intervention and answer to prayer. As I'm thinking about this, one of the scriptures that came to my mind from the New Testament is in James 4, 2, and 3, talking about prayer. We talked about prayer the last three or four lessons in Matthew. We talk about prayer in reference to David's Psalms. But one thing I think is apparent in the lives of many, many Christians is that we don't pray enough. We don't understand the priority of prayer. Prayer is not the top of our to-do list every day and spend that time with the Lord, not in terms of quick bullet prayers, but in terms of focused, intense, concentrated prayer. I didn't say it has to be for 15 minutes or 30 minutes or 45 minutes. Time factor is not the issue, but the issue is A non-distracted, focused, thoughtful prayer. That's what we see in the Psalms. The Psalms are different kinds of prayer. They're hymns. They're put to music, but they're different kinds of hymns. Now, we get into the New Testament. There's a lot of different teaching about prayer. But James, in writing to his audience, says a couple of important things in James 4, 2, and 3. He says, first of all, at the end of 4, 2, you do not have because you do not ask. And the point of that suggests that God is waiting for us to ask to intervene, but because we don't avail ourselves of prayer in terms of supplication and petition, that God does not intervene. He is a God who expects us to come to him in prayer. Then a second problem that we have in prayer is we ask and don't receive because we ask a myth. We ask for the wrong reasons. We ask for uh, personal reasons, for selfish reasons, for reasons that may be motivated by our own lust patterns. And this is the example that he's using here, that you may spend it on your pleasures. So these are the problems with prayer. Prayer, ultimately, a lot of people have a misconception in prayer. I talked about this in reference to Jesus, that prayer isn't about changing God's mind about what he's doing for us, that prayer is about orienting our thinking to God's plan for our life, submitting to his authority, not getting God to conform to our authority. God isn't a big genie in the sky that if we just uh, say the magic words, the right chant, Uh, repeat the prayer of Jabez 15 times, plus more. Y'all remember when that was a big thing about 15 years or more ago, uh, that if we say it right and have the right formula, that God's going to answer us. I remember back in around, I don't know, this was 30 years or so ago, I was (coughs) teaching the first go-round at the uh, College of Biblical Studies, or what has become the College of Biblical Studies, and I was teaching an introduction to a theology class, and it was on Theology Proper, and I was talking about God, and had talked about the same kind of thing. And during the break, there was a lady who came out, and she said, and she didn't come back to the, after the break. She said, "I just, I, I just don't think that's how God operates. God is like a Coke machine. You put in the right money, and you press the right button, and that's what you're going to get. Now, you see, that is, what's the name of that kind of theology? That's prosperity theology. And you'd be amazed at how many churches in this city teach various forms of that kind of, that kind of theology, where God is basically becomes our servant rather than we serving God. In fact, it's been interesting to me. I've been in this city most of my life. I was gone for about seven years when I was in Connecticut. When I came back, I didn't recognize the church life here because things had really, really changed from the early 90s to the mid-early 2000s. But I really had my eyes open a couple of years ago. We had a young lady who came to the church and became a part of our church, became a member of the church. And... She's involved in the chaplain ministry at the uh, Harris County Jail, and when uh, I first met her and was talking to her about her background, how she knew she was saved, things of that nature, she took me through the course of her adventures in church land in Houston, and how she had gone to this big church and that big church and all everybody. We've had other people who come to the church do the same thing. People come along and they say, we teach the Bible. But that's the last thing they do. They give the Bible a lot of lip service. But the the circus... And that's being mild. That goes on in a lot of these churches today. They're they're entertainment facilities. They are places to go to feed the narcissism of the uber-narcissistic millennial generation. They give lip service to God and the Bible but they don't teach verse by verse anymore. They don't teach doctrines. They don't understand what basic theology or doctrine is. They don't teach people the Bible. And to know Bible doctrine, first you have to know the Bible, then you have to understand what the Bible teaches. And so we live in a world today that's in some ways not dissimilar from this somewhat messed up congregation that James is addressing and, and James, remember, this is the same congregation that has the ushers that are only going to uh, help those who are wealthy, and they're going to ignore the the poorer people, the lower socioeconomic uh, class that comes to the congregation. So James has to correct them on a number of things. And they're, they're being split up because of mental attitude sins. He talks about the fact that... Um, that they're being dominated in, in uh, earlier at the or at the end of James chapter three, he talks about the fact that they're uh, being influenced by the doctrines of the world. They're loving the world and they're lovers of the world rather than rather than lovers of God. And the solution he gives later in James four is they have to submit to God, and they have to cleanse their hands, which is a, uh, <clears throat> a metaphor for confession of sin and he shows how really messed up they are, is that they think that prayer is a way to get God to do what they want. And that has been a problem with so many people. I think that's typical of babies, baby believers. They think that, well, prayer is to get God to answer my prayers and do what I want. But as we grow and mature, we learn that, no, prayer is a way that we think through the issues, we think through the issues in reference to what the Word says, And then God conforms our thinking to his plan and his purposes. And we've seen that happen in the life of David. So we see that God does answer prayer, but he answers prayer that is brought to him on the basis of what he teaches in his word. Now, I have an acronym that I've developed Uh, cats to think through the four different basic different kinds of prayer and four different parts of prayer c is for confession we have to make sure we're in right relationship to god uh, before he will hear us in the psalms we read that if we regard iniquity in our heart the lord will not hear i'm amazed today how many people think that well you don't really need to confess your sins well, Scripture says that if you're walking by the not walking by the Spirit, you're walking according to the flesh. You're regarding iniquity in your heart, and the Lord will not listen. Your prayers will not be efficacious. James says at the end of James 5 that it's the uh, prayers of a righteous man that are efficacious, and that's referring to somebody who is walking by the Holy Spirit. He's not walking uh, by the sin nature. And they're efficacious because he understands prayer. So we have to confess to be in right relationship to God. A second type of prayer is one that we often see in parts of the Psalms or throughout the Psalms is the prayers of adoration, where we are praising God, describing how God has intervened in our lives, and that's a lot of what we see in Psalm, uh, Psalm 18. Psalm 18 is also a prayer of thanksgiving. That's the key. We thank God, not just flippantly, not just superficially, not just running through sort of a a grocery list of the things that we typically thank God for, but to reflect and to probe into our day-to-day lives and to talk uh, to God about what it is that we are indeed grateful for. And gratefulness and gratitude is always related to grace orientation. We understand that all that we are and all that we have comes from God. Our jobs, our income, the fact that we are able to put food on the table, gas in our cars, uh, even if we don't have a job, God is providing for us in in many, many different ways. Somebody told me not long ago that we have four or five people uh, in the congregation or extended congregation who are, uh, in need of jobs, I only know of one specifically. Uh, there may be one or two others. I'm, uh, I'm not sure about, but, but we need to pray for them. But God is in, still in charge, even when things seem chaotic in our life, which is what we see in part of this particular psalm. And then the the S is for supplication. That's when we bring requests before God, and supplication can be intercession for others where we're praying for other people and what's going on in their lives, or it can be petition where we are praying in terms of specific situations in our own lives. Right now as a congregation, most of you are aware we've had, at least I've been involved in two memorial services in the last 10 days. I am aware that I could possibly have a third one with just at any moment now almost – and uh, that's going to be that's just three, three within a two week period of time is a little more than I've ever had to deal with as a pastor. But we have a number of people also on the sick list who are facing some very threatening things, and we should be praying for them, praying for their testimony uh, at a time of death, uh, and, and preceding that with all the medical personnel they have to deal with their opportunities to give the gospel and to others who they may meet in the hospital. It's a tremendous opportunity to be focused on others and to be a testimony for the gospel. Also, families have a tremendous opportunity to be a witness to others in their family of how important the Word of God is in their lives. And that brings up the other issue, which is having a memorial service or a funeral. I've had a few people who said, well, we've never really done anything like that. And the purpose for a memorial service is not to, not really to remember the person per se. It's not all about uh, idolizing the person or talking a lot about them. It's about providing an opportunity for your friends and families to be challenged once again with the need to either a trust Christ as Savior, or b to get right spiritually because sooner or later we're all going to die physically unless the Lord comes back and we need to be ready and pursuing spiritual growth. One of the greatest opportunities I think any of us will have in our lives to minister to those we know is at our memorial service or funeral when people are going to talk about how important the Lord was for us and all of a sudden some people are going to realize well that's what made them different. I remember when Uh, Jim Speedy died. Uh, That was, what, five or six years ago. Jim had not been a believer until late in life, and he became a believer sitting here in West Houston Bible Church. And there were so many people that he had done business with and been involved with uh, over the years who came to that service. And some of them, I think there was a Hindu man there and there was a Muslim there, heard the gospel for the very first time. That is why we have, I I would rather do funerals than weddings. At weddings, everybody's distracted and having a good time, but at funerals, everybody's faced with their own mortality. And I've heard other pastors say this, and I echo it, that I would rather do a funeral and have that opportunity to focus on what's really important when people are more of a sober-minded, objective stance and be willing to listen. I've also done a couple of uh, of services where people were not, and uh, I did one over in Bel Air. I had gotten a call from the uh, Earthman Funeral Home there, and it was a man who had a very prominent position in the sports world here in Houston in the uh, sports television realm, and he was a believer, and his family were believers, but they didn't go to church anywhere. And the, I knew the guy who was the head of the, uh, uh, <coughs> of the, the funeral home over there, Earth he called me up and said, would you be willing to do this? And I did, and I gave pretty much my normal uh, memorial service. And I had a couple of people stand up and walk out angrily because they didn't want to hear that Jesus Christ was the only way to heaven and an explanation of the gospel. That was one of the few times that I've ever heard that, but that's the reason we have a memorial service. So we pray for the right reasons, for the right things, and we need to be in prayer for these folks in our congregation as they they face what may be their last year or two or three on this earth. Now, we've looked at the theme here that in this it's a Thanksgiving hymn, and uh, David is expressing his gratitude and joy to God for finally delivering him from the persecution from Saul and he explains the circumstances of his distress he explains uh, how God intervened and what God did in that intervention so just as quick review in verse 3 he states a gnomic or universal principle he continuously calls upon the lord who's worthy to be praised and says so shall i be saved from my enemies and i've uh (coughs) revised that a little bit i think the hebrew grammar uh supports that i continuously call he's not just talking about i called in the past or i will call in the future but this is stating something that he has learned over the last five to ten years and so he regularly calls upon the lord then when we get into the first major section of this, this Psalm, David describes how God supernaturally intervened to deliver him from his enemies who threatened his life. And he describes his situation in verses four and five and how he describes, he's, he's got his back against the corner. He's threatened with, with death. And he doesn't see how he's going to survive, even though the promise of God is that he will become king of Israel. He, his experience is that his life is uh, is in danger and it could be cut short at any moment. So he knows he should trust God. But on the other hand, like most of us, the circumstances just seem over, overwhelming. And he describes it as the cords of death surrounded me. And then he said, talks about Belial. Uh, which I'm translating chaotic evil. He says the floods of chaotic evil. It just uh, He's overwhelmed by it. He is picturing the fact that his enemies surround him as if he is in the midst of an overwhelming flood that threatens to drown him. And God, he will use this same imagery uh, again and again as we go through this, and God will rescue him. Uh, from those floods of destruction and we looked at this term belial that is translated as um, ungodliness but it's much more than that these are we have seen that uh, these are people who are dedicated to pursuing in their arrogance uh, behavior that is destructive of society and that if they are allowed to fulfill their desires, then it will destroy a culture, destroy a country, destroy a nation. We have many people in our world today who are sons of Belial, who seek to destroy this. Country. But they think, in a, it's like Jeremiah says, they call uh, good bad and bad good. I am amazed as I go through uh, different things. I was talking with uh, with someone today. And we were uh, somewhat laughing about the fact that that in california it 's racist to say you believe that everybody that the entire human race is one race that that 's a racist statement. but if you go down to the Holocaust Museum here it talks about the fact that they that the Jews are not a separate race they are members of the human race so and that comes from a somewhat liberal perspective within the Jewish community. I mean, at, at the Holocaust Museum here, you know, many Jews in America have a somewhat liberal bias. But they put that up, and that statement would be considered racist according to California law. So you see... Evil is fighting evil, I mean this, this the, the, everybody's confused, nobody knows what absolutes are anymore, and they're they're just making everything racist or everything this but of course if you're if you're beating up on somebody who's a white male, it's not racism because they deserve it it's it's irrational, and the only answer is going to be ultimately being renovated by the Word of God. And until that happens, you can't pass laws to change these things. It's just we're in a morass of absolute irrationalism and rebellion. We've moved from moral relativism to judicial relativism, and we see it in sports. We see it in city government and state government and in the judicial system that it doesn't matter what the law says. If if I don't like it, I'm not going to obey it. And so the man is once again the ruler of his own destiny and is completely in rebellion against God. It's, it's judges. It's the period of the judges. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. So we get into the main part, we see that in verse 6 that David summarizes what he did. In my distress, he says... I called upon the Lord. That's our solution in any time of distress, any time of hostility, any time of opposition, uh, whether it's health, whether it's finances, whether it has to do with spiritual things, whether it has to do with a job or family, relationships. We call out upon the Lord. And so this is David reflecting on what he did historically, that as he faced this crisis, he called upon the Lord and he cried out. Uh, to the Lord. That's his summary. And the terminology that he uses is a word he's already used or a form of a word he's already used a couple of times. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. And that's a synonymous parallelism with the word in the second line, and cried to the Lord. And he then he says, and my cry came before him. He is vocalizing full of his own emotion. And that's not wrong. He is vocalizing and saying, I am crying out audibly to God to rescue me from this situation. And he heard me. My cry came before him even to his ears. And that's located in his temple. And I raised the point last week, what the Bible teaches about the heavenly temple. And just as a quick review, that this is God's dwelling in the heavenlies. That Psalm 11.4 says the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. The Lord's throne is in his temple. This is his dwelling place in heaven. Habakkuk 2.20 states the same thing, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And then the description of that is given in Exodus 24.10, and the artwork here was designed for teaching Revelation, and it's a picture of that throne room scene in Revelation 4 and 5. Secondly, I pointed out that this is not a temple that's been built. It can't be an earthly temple because Solomon hasn't built a temple yet. David wasn't allowed to build a temple. It's not talking about the tabernacle. David is focused on serving the Lord here, and he sees that that we would put it in the sense that heaven is another dimension surrounding us, and that he understood that his life here serving the Lord was serving the heavenly temple, and so he's focused on that. And so when he prays, he says, I'll worship Toward your holy temple. And he looks forward to dwelling in the house of the Lord, that his prayers are inquiries into his holy temple. Uh, Psalm 23, 6 ends with the phrase, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's a synonym for the dwelling place of God uh, in heaven. I talked last time about passages in Hebrews 9, 11 and 924, that there is a heavenly temple that is the archetype or pattern for the earthly temple. And verses in Revelation 7, uh, 15 and Revelation 21, 22 also teach us about this temple, that in the heavens, the uh, God is served day and night in his temple uh, by the saints and by the angels, but in revelation twenty one twenty two we 're told that in the new heavens and new earth there 's no temple. I put up these two charts. you can go back and look at them i 'm not going to go through them again, where you have all of these similarities between the heavenly temple and the earthly temple. The um, furniture is identical there 's a menorah, trumpets, altar of sacrifice, altar of incense. Uh, the four horns of the altar, the Ark of the Covenant, the golden censer, uh, the holy place, and the holy of holies are both found in the earthly temple and in the heavenly temple. Passages like Revelation 8, 3 through 5 and Revelation 9, 13 talk about uh, this altar. And so then, as David says that God hears him from his heavenly throne in the temple we see what happens when God begins to intervene and to answer, and starting in verse 7. And I want you to notice how dramatic this is. It's, it's dramatic, it's picturesque, and he uses imagery that we find in numerous other places in the New Testament talking about the throne of God. And all of these images and all of these word pictures, these metaphors, figures of speech are all designed to teach us uh, more about the grandeur and greatness of God. And by going to these different passages, so as I put these other references up there, What I encourage you to do is go read those passages, not just the two or three verses I'm putting up here on the screen, but also looking at the overall uh, passages and what they say about God and the presence of God and how God uh, is intervening in the affairs of man. And so as we look at this, we should also notice that in the first five verses, Are actually six verses the focal point, the pronouns are what? I will love you O Lord, uh, my rock my my deliverer, my strength to whom I will trust my shield, horn of my salvation. It's all about me, me, me I, I, I. David is expressing God in relation to him and he's talking about his problem but starting in verse 7 we don't hear that first person pronoun anymore. It's all about what God is doing and in intervening in, in David's life. And so he talks about what is happening, and he describes these things that are taking place in creation, the earthquake, uh, the smoke that's going up, uh, uh, the heavens being shaken, Darkness, all of these things, and what are we to think about this? Did this happen literally, which some people think that, that it does, but in the dimension of heaven where it's not something that's seen here, or is, or is this language talking about uh, describing God in this metaphorical language? I tend to think that there is something more real than just metaphor here because the more we look at the examples of scriptures, I'm going to point out, we see that th- that when God intervenes in human history, it shakes up a fallen, corrupt world. Now, we don't know if there were actual earthquakes that took place at this time. It's possible there were earthquakes that took place, for example, uh, in the Battle of Michmash, there was an earthquake there. There was earthquakes at Mount Sinai. Uh, there were other earthquakes at different times in the ancient world. There's an earthquake in Jerusalem when Jesus died on the cross. So when God is intervening in these dramatic ways in history, we see these kinds of things talked about in Scripture. In Psalm 18.7 We read, Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Now, God isn't having a little temper tantrum in heaven. I've taught this many times. There are some people who try to argue that God, because we're in the image of God, we have emotion, God has emotion. A lot of debate there. But when it comes to the anger of God, this is usually expressed by what's called uh, well it's a figure of speech, but it's called an anthropomorphism. An anthropomorphism means that 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 we're attributing to God a form of man that God doesn't actually possess, okay? For example, it talks about the hands of God. That doesn't mean God actually has hands, but the, or the arm of God, that usually pictures the power of God or the working of God in some way, the eyes of God, that, that usually talks about uh, God's knowledge, not that he actually has eyes as, as you and I have eyes, And the word that is used to, the idiom that's used in Hebrew to express someone being angry literally is their nose burned. You know, they get mad, they get upset, their face turns red, their nose turns red. It's a very vivid, picturesque term, but God doesn't have a face or nose that turns red. So right away we know that it's a figure of speech for something God doesn't actually possess, but it's designed to talk about a human emotion which God does not actually possess either. That's called an anthropopathism, attributing an emotion to God that he doesn't actually possess in order to communicate to us something about God's plan and purpose. So that when God talks about the wrath of God or the anger of God, this is talking about the severity of God's justice in action. It's not saying, you know, we might talk about a judge in a courtroom as he was really mad he threw the book at it. Well, that doesn't mean he literally picked up a book, a law book, and threw it at the defendant, and he may not have even been emotional. But he sentenced him to the full extent of the law. And so it's an idiom to express the the, the full extent of the law. so. God is intervening because his righteousness has been violated and his justice is in action. Uh, Verse 8 says, smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also. What a dramatic picture. God is moving, literally moving. His actions are moving heaven and earth to bring about the answer to David's prayer. Now, this isn't the only place where we have this this kind of imagery. Uh, Turn in the Psalms over a few pages to Psalm 104. Psalm 104. Again, this is a praise Psalm. And the first five verses, I put it on the screen, but Uh, We can read it, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Now, when we see the word bless, it doesn't mean we're blessing God. It is an idiom for praise. Uh, Often the word is used for praise, meaning praise the Lord. It goes on, uh, praise the Lord is how I would translate that, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty. Listen to the imagery here. You cover yourself with light as with a garment. See, light reflects. It, it, it speaks of God's righteousness, his purity, his, his uh, absolute perfection. He's covered in light in which no darkness can exist. He has power. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain. Indicate a creation, It just it, it, it's very dramatic, dynamic imagery there. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. Now, we're not going to get into a detail on that, but remember back in Genesis, it talks about God separated the waters with by the Raqia, the firmament, and he had the waters above and the waters below. That's what this is referring back to, because it talks about... Um, The beams of the the waters are in the upper chambers. So that's talking, is reflecting back upon what God did during the creation week. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. And he makes the clouds his chariot. Now we're going to see that cloud imagery repeated several times as we go through Psalm 18. He walks on the wings of the wind. Now what all that is describing is God controls the weather. God controls the wind, God controls the clouds, and he masters them. He is in control. Uh, He walks, uh, excuse me, verse 4, who makes his angels spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. That's quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, talking about uh, the role of the angels in serving, serving God. And then in verse 5, you who laid the foundations of the earth, that's the starting point. Job 37 says, what happened when the foundations were laid? The sons of God, that's all of the angels, sang for joy at the very beginning the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever. The earth's not going to be destroyed until God destroys this present earth after the the millennial kingdom. And so we see these pictures. We see earthquakes that show up several times as we go through the Scripture. Psalm 18.7 describes this earthquake, this shaking of of creation as God intervenes. We also see it in passages like Judges 5.4. Judges 5 is Deborah's psalm of praise to God as he intervened in giving the Israelites victory over over the Canaanites, specifically over uh, Jabin, who was the king of Hazor, and Sisera, his general. Remember Sisera? He's the guy who got nailed by Ya'el, uh, who he wiped out. He's uh, tired from the battle, and he thinks she is an ally and goes to her to, for our aid and we can safely take a nap. As soon as he falls asleep, she grabbed a tent peg and drove it through his temple. Killing him. Israel was delivered. He's delivered. uh, And and the whole psalm uh, of Judges 5 is a psalm uh, declaring praise to God for giving them that victory. Lord, when you went out from Sierra, which is Edom, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens poured. Apparently, there was a flash flood that came up. If you've been to Israel, You've been up on at either Megiddo or at Mount Carmel, and you've looked down on that valley. That's the um, uh, Kishon River that runs below, and you, there's a flash flood. This is an open plain where the chariots of Yabin could maneuver, but apparently there's this flash flood that's described in the psalm that wipes out his army, and that's what this describes. The earth trembled. There's earthquakes that take place god is shaking things and intervening to destroy the armies of the canaanite job talks about this in job 9 6 he shakes the earth out of place and its pillars tremble it's not the gods of the canaanites the baalim and the asher and the others it is god who rules over his creation Psalm 104 32, we just read from the first part of Psalm 104, but in verse 32 it says, He looks on the earth and it trembles. He touches the hills and they smoke. I think maybe California has experienced a little bit of this recently. Uh, we see God intervening in his creation. In Jeremiah 424, Jeremiah says, I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled. This is describing an earthquake. And all the hills moved back. And fourth, God intervening in Israel's history, and often this involved uh, the tremors in creation, Jeremiah 5129The land will tremble, and sorrow for every purpose of the Lord shall be performed against Babylon. This is speaking of Babylon's future uh, judgment. So you have the uh, trembling that takes place, Exodus fifteen. When the nations hear about how God's deliverance of Israel at the exodus, they will they will tremble. Uh, that's one way the word is used, a quake in Isaiah 13:13, 13, 13, Isaiah 13 is a prophecy about the destruction of Babylon, just like we had in uh, Jeremiah 51 a minute ago. God says, I will shake the heavens and the earth will move out of her place. That's fulfilled during the tribulation period. In the wrath of the Lord of hosts, his judgment there. So there's trembling on in, in the earth. Uh, Joel 2.10 talks about the earth quaking and, tremble, and the heavens trembling. This, again, is during the uh, time of the tribulation period. Psalm 77:16 and 18, again, uses this same imagery. Uh, God uh, trim- causes the earth to tremble, the waters and the depths tremble. Uh, the voice of your thunder, the whirlwind, so you have thunder and lightning, the earth, earthquakes, all of this typically goes with God's intervention. Um, Psalm 18.9 goes on to say, smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. So that God is intervening and he is destroying those that are in opposition uh, to him. Another verse that talks about trembling uh, what That I mentioned a minute ago is in first Samuel fourteen fifteen which that there was an earthquake at the time that that uh, Jonathan climbed those cliffs at Mimash and then attacked the Philistine uh, garrison there, so we see these different uh, signs in the heavens uh, verses nine and ten he bowed the heavens also he's he 's moving we would say he 's moving heaven and earth to answer. Uh, david 's prayer, and then he 's pictured as riding upon a cherry a cherub, and he flew he flew upon the wings of the wind. This is a picture of god 's uh, active and quick intervention now at the end to destroy uh, Saul and his armies so he can elevate David to the kingship. I want you to turn with me to another passage that Uh, Relates to this. We'll look at Ezekiel, that's the book you don't understand, next to Isaiah, which you don't understand. Um, And I say that because I get a lot of questions from people when they read Isaiah and Ezekiel. And I can understand that in some places because of the way they're written. So turn to Ezekiel chapter 1, and I just want to look at this vision that God gives to Ezekiel. Ezekiel, like Isaiah, sees God, like John in in Revelation 1. On the fifth day of the month, which was in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity, so he locks it down on the calendar. This is a real space-time event. It happens on a particular day of the month. The word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel, the high priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans, so he was taken captive in the second round of captives in uh, 597 BC to Babylon, and this is what he describes in verse four. Then I looked and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north. Isn't it you know, again and again? You see these same images from different writers, different times in history. Yet when they describe God, they use similar language. A whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud. There we have that word cloud again associated with God. With raging fire, we've already talked about that. God ignites the coal. So there's this raging fire engulfing itself and brightness or light all around. And it radiating out of the midst like the color of amber, sort of a golden brown color out of the midst of the fire also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures now this is where it gets interesting because earlier i read from the psalms that god rides on the cherubs well he's describing here these cherubim as the hebrew plural or in english we just added s these cherubs and this was their appearance they had the likeness of a man each one had four faces, and each one had four wings. And so we'll see that it's the face of a lion, the face of a man, the face of an eagle, and the face of an ox. They had four faces, each had four wings. Now, the seraphim are a different order but similar. They're pictured in Isaiah 6. They had six wings. Seraphim had 6 SS. Okay, that's a little mnemonic device to remember that. Uh, cherubim had four so this describes God. This cloud, the fire, uh, the cherubs, all are very, very similar. Then, we back in, then we're back in Psalm 18, and God says, or uh, David describes it as, uh, he made darkness his secret place in, in verse 11 darkness his secret place his canopy around him was dark waters and thick clouds of the skies and so we see this this depiction of God surrounded by clouds and the brightness before him so again this emphasis on light and brightness and fire uh, the expressing the holiness of God the righteousness of God rather From the brightness before him, his thick clouds, so again we see this same imagery of clouds, passed with hailstones and coals of fire. That's the second time we've seen that expression of coals of fire. This is not uncommon. We see it depicted, for example, at Sinai. This language that we're reading about in Psalm 18 is language that reminds us of God's intervention in Egypt and God's appearance, his theophany to Israel on Mount Sinai. We're told in Exodus 19.16 that it came to pass on the third day, that's the third day at Mount Sinai, in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people and the camp trembled. Now, what's the trumpet? This is the trumpet of God. You know, it doesn't just blow at the end. And then later in Exodus twenty-four 16, we're told that when the Lord descended on Mount Sinai, the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The cloud prevents us from seeing God directly and seeing who he is. Another psalm, Psalm 97, 2 through 5, has this same kind of description of God. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. That's always been one of my favorite verses because it talks about that God's throne is a throne of righteousness and justice. In similar passages, it talks about how grace and mercy go out from that. But grace and mercy are not separated from righteousness and justice. But for love and mercy to have integrity, it has to be based on the righteousness and justice of God. Again, we have that picture of fire. Fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. His lightnings light the world. The earth sees and trembles. Creation is very much attuned to God's presence. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. That's another way of talking about an earthquake and trembling. Ezekiel 10 goes on to talk about the cherubim. Uh, they stand on the south side of the temple when the man went in, that's Ezekiel, the cloud filled the inner court. Even then, God's is, presence is veiled by this cloud. And in verse 4, then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused. This is the glory of the Lord leaving the temple uh, prior to Nebuchadnezzar coming to destroy it. The glory of the Lord uh, departed. First it went to the threshold, then it went to the gate, then it crossed over the Mount of Olives and then ascended to heaven. And so this is the beginning. When it pauses, it's leaving the temple, and the house was filled with the cloud. Again and again, the presence of God seems to be associated with this cloud. And then David goes on. In verse 13, he says, The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice, Hailstone and coals of fire. That's the third time we've seen this. Mentioned in association with the presence of God. Coals of fire. It has to do with purification. Remember in Isaiah 6, I went over that at the introduction to Psalm uh, 19, when I was that first week I was gone on vacation. If you didn't hear it, you should listen to it. Went through Isaiah and said, What happens? Isaiah goes into the temple and sees a vision where he is, he is seeing from the earthly temple directly into the heavenly temple, and he sees God. Not a vision; that language isn't used. He sees God, and when he is uh, when he is has this encounter, and God is revealed to him, as it always happens in the scripture, our sinfulness is exposed, and he screams out, "Woe is me, a man of unclean lips." And a seraph takes a coal and takes it to his lips. Now, he doesn't burn him. Literally, this is somewhat different because it's heavenly, but it purifies him. That's the picture. That fire is, is pictured. We get the word ca- cauterized in English. That comes from the Greek word katharizo, Okay. It, and that's what they would do to a wound to kill any bacteria, or whatever was there uh, for many, many years before we had an, a, antibiotics. So there's a cauterization, there. it's a purification that takes place. So this mention of the coals of fire picks up this idea that God purifies that which he encounters. So, verse 14, he sent out his arrows. See, this is, we look at a battle. And we look at David fighting Goliath with his sling. We look at the Philistines and the Israelites fighting with their swords and with their chariots. But there's a battle scene that we don't see, whether it's the Alamo, whether it's Pearl Harbor, whether it's D-Day, whatever the battle may be, whether it's Arnhem Bridge, whatever, there is something going on in the heavenly sphere that we don't see. David here pulls back the curtain on that. He says what's going on behind the scenes is God's sovereign providential direction of that battle. He sent out his arrows and scattered the foe, lightnings in abundance, and he vanquished them. So in David's case, it's an answer to prayer and he's depicting how God defeated Saul and his because they not because they were the enemies of the Philistines, but because Saul and his allies were the enemies of David in god 's plan, and he sees this as again intersecting with creation and makes an interesting observation in verse fifteen. He says, "Then the channels of the sea were seen there's something exposed here in this activity." that the seas are in turmoil and it exposes something that is called the channels of the sea. It's the Hebrew word afik, which is translated could be translated the rivers of the sea, talking about the currents and the rivers. Actually, there are rivers that run in the sea. And he says, the foundation of the world was uncovered at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of of your nostrils now i want to close with this what i've always thought was a fascinating story the bible is the word of god the bible is something we can go to and we can learn in job it talks about the fact that the rocks speak to us that's one of steve austin's favorite verses because we can learn from the rocks we can learn certain things about god's creation And there's this phrase, channels of the sea, in Psalm 1815, that is very similar to a phrase that is used in Psalm 8.8. The birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. It's a different word in Hebrew, but it's a synonym. And there was a man in the 19th century by the name of Matthew Mowry. He was an American naval officer, and he became an oceanographer. He, he lived from 1806 to 1873, and he was a Christian. He, Like many in that era, he loved his Bible. He read his Bible, and he read these verses, and he said the Bible talks about channels and paths in the sea. Now, uh, seaman, and he was uh, in the Navy, He entered into the Navy in 1825, but because of an accident some 14 years later that left him partially disabled, he couldn't go on CD. But now any seaman would know that there are currents in the sea. But he said, God has constructed it this way. Because if God is a creator God, and God created the oceans then the dynamics in the ocean are something we can learn, and they are standard, and they're verifiable, and we can chart them. And so he spent uh, 20 years after his accident uh, devoting himself, he's still in the Navy, to studying the winds and the clouds and the uh, ocean features. And when he read these passages, he's searching for... A way to map these rivers and challenges. As he studied ship's logs and he talked to seamen, uh, he began to uh, study these ocean currents and he would set out uh, weighted bottles and, and watch how they drifted and measure their drift and things of that nature. And in 1855, Matthew Mowry wrote the first textbook on modern oceanography. He's a creationist. He's a Bible believer. Modern oceanography had its roots not in Darwinism, which Origin of Species was written four years later, but because he believed in the absolutes of the Bible. And he read the Bible and he believed it. And so he wrote the physical geography of the sea and its meteorology and presented a Bible-based view of oceanography and that's the foundation for the modern science of oceanography. I heard that story at Camp Penile at a a campfire one night. When I was at camp, and I have never forgotten it, I can't always remember his name. I had to look it up on the internet to to recover the story, and they've got a whole write-up on him on the Answers in Genesis website. But there are lots and lots of stories like this about different men, scientists, in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, like Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton wrote more about theology than he did about science, because he believed the Bible. The Bible is a foundation of science. We would never have the science we had today if it weren't for men who understood and believed the Bible. And it's a fascinating thing. There's a book that ICR puts out. I think it's called Men of Science, Men of Faith. Isn't that right, John? Have you seen it? You can get it. And it's great. And it's a small book. And it gives these little biographical-type stories about these men. And it's great for kids. It's great to get this. Read it to your kids. Teach them about these kinds of things. You'll hear about Boyle. You'll hear about... um, uh, many many other uh, scientists kepler, others who were uh, bible believers so we'll start next time as we go forward into uh, chapter eighteen verse uh, verse sixteen as we see David's direct expression of God's intervention in answering his prayer. Father, thank you for these examples in scripture that teach us about yourself teach us about uh, your impassibility, teach us about your incomprehensibility, teach us about your immensity and your power, and the fact that you do intervene in our lives. You intervene in answer to prayer, and you intervene in rescuing us in times of crisis. And Father, we pray that we might be men and women of intense, focused, concentrated prayer, coming to understand how to pray and how we should use prayer in our spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.